Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of May 16th, 2016. On today's show, we're going to get pumped about at least half of the NBA Conference Finals, where the Warriors are going to face the Thunder, and the Cavs will play the Raptors. Slate's deputy editor, John Swansburg, will join us to talk about Stephen Curry's signature shoes, which have been a huge retail success, but have not been a big hit with the sneakerheads. And we'll assess the debate over whether the Olympics should be canceled or relocated due to the threat of the Zika virus. Those are our choices. <laughs> <laughs> we're assessing the debate. Uh, we're embracing and assessing the debate. I am in Slate's New York office this week and snuggling beside me in the studio is my friend, Mike Pesca. Snuggling beside you. He is the host of Slate's daily snuggling podcast, The Gist. Hello, Mike. Hello. How are you? I'm good. And with us from Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Is this the first time it's been you and Mike in New York and me all by myself in Washington? I have to interrupt this, but we have breaking Rugned odor. We have breaking Rugned odor news. <laughs> yes. <laughs> he punched a dude in the face. Encarnacion. A Batista, actually. Batista, who's like the Encarnacion of right field. Uh, <laughs> Mike, what were your thoughts on the Odor Batista fisticuffs from uh, the Rangers Blue Jays game? I, I love all those guys, and I just think it's impressive. So many times we see a guy take a swing at another guy who's wearing a helmet, and uh, he doesn't connect. He connects with the helmet. This was a flush on the chin connection despite the helmet. Kudos to that horrible, unsportsmanlike Ruchned Odor. Now, my second thought was, for years I've been following the career of Odor, and I thought that there'd be so many puns. His last name is spelled O-D-O-R. So, come on, it's just, the headlines write themselves, only they don't. Because in baseball, we become habituated, I think more so than other sports, I have a theory, like Milton Bradley, and you'll talk about, or Coco Crisp, hey, Coco Crisp hit a home run, Coco Crisp stole a base, and someone who doesn't follow baseball, or follows it lightly enough that they don't know Milton Bradley or Coco Crisp, will say, are you serious? Coco Crisp? And then I'll be like, yeah, that is kind of a strange name, or Milton Bradley, or Odor. Whereas in the other sports, I mean, 
uh, what's his name gets nicknamed the law. Ben Jarvis Green Ellis gets nicknamed the law firm because that's slightly weird. I think it ties into Josh, your thing about football announcers never, never saying, oh, that's a weird last name. It's our professional responsibility to pronounce it correctly or go along <laughs> with the flow. Right. So maybe football is a holdout of uh, noticing the downside is you have all this knuckle dragging. Oh, that's a name that's not Smith. The upside is, you know, when a name is odd, it gets the appropriate attention it deserves. So maybe this is just all viral marketing by Odor to get people to talk more about his name. Yeah. I mean, it's wafting to a conversation near you. <laughs> In our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to talk about Russell Westbrook. He is the all-star point guard for the Oklahoma City Thunder. He also is making a lot of fashion statements, loud fashion statements during these playoffs. And we will discuss those fashion statements. Sign up for Slate Plus and get a free two-week trial of the service at slate.com slash hangup plus. On Sunday in Toronto, the Raptors beat the Heat in Game 7 of the Eastern Conference Semis. It was a 27-point win. It mercifully ended a series that was most notable for key injuries on both sides. Poor play from both teams and a bunch of overtimes that nobody wanted to see. The Raptors will now play the Cleveland Cavaliers in the Eastern Conference Finals, and the Cavs have yet to lose a game in the playoffs, 4-0 against the Pistons, 4-0 against the Hawks, setting records for three-point shooting all the while. In the West, Steph Curry came back for the Warriors in Game 4 against the Blazers. He scored an all-time record for the playoffs or the regular season for any NBA game, 17 points in a single overtime period to lead Golden State over Portland in that game. The Warriors beat the Blazers in five very entertaining games. They'll now play the Thunder, who came back to beat the 67-win Spurs in six after losing game one of that series by 32 points. Now that Steph is back and healthy, the sun is shining a little bit brighter. My chair is more comfortable. My water just is a little colder and crisper. The Warriors-Thunder series should be a lot of fun. It features four of the top seven players in the MVP balloting. Curry, Westbrook, uh, Durant, and Draymond Green. And also there's a really interesting stylistic contrast between Golden State, which likes to play small, and OKC, which beat San Antonio because it played big with Durant and Serge Ibaka and Steven Adams and Ennis Kanner. So what are you, are you looking forward to the series, Mike? What do you think? I'm disappointed that the Spurs aren't in it. The, I think this pivot off of – it's not a pivot. I think this pivot off of, well, we can't wait until the Spurs Warriors, which was true to, hey, Thunder's going to be just as good. It's not going to be just <laughs> as good or almost as good. And I think the Thunder are a little like the Raptors in that they have two great players and they have the other complementary players. But I don't know. Is this a tautology when those two great players aren't on? They're not as good good a team or they're not a complete team and it seems that the Warriors have ways to stop either one or or slow down either uh, one or two of those players. Small, quick point guards do give the Warriors headaches, but you know, okay, Lillard won a game. Harden with some, he's not that small, but he won a game. So I really don't see it going, you know, six or seven. I don't know. Aren't the Thunder more efficient offensively? Don't, if they are hitting, uh, they don't shoot very well from from three-point range, but when they are on, they're like scoring, what is there, 113 points per 100 possessions? They're an efficient team with two amazing players, two of the best players in the uh, in the NBA. Why shouldn't this be as exciting? In some ways, maybe it's more exciting because it's more offensively balanced, and yeah, there are some mismatches, but it could be pretty damn entertaining. I'm glad that I'm able to look you in the eye to tell you how terrible that comparison to the Raptors was. If DeRozan and Lowry were yeah, so yeah. bad, have been so bad in the playoffs. Scored a lot of points, though. They're both shooting around 35%. The Cavs are probably going to destroy the Raptors. The Thunder in that series against the Spurs, I think, really bothered San Antonio with their athleticism, which should not be as big an issue for Golden State. But the three games that those teams played, the Warriors and the Thunder during the regular season, the Thunder led in the fourth quarter in all three. One of those games was one of the greatest games in NBA regular season history, the yes. one where um, the Warriors made the late comeback and Steph Curry made the 30 or 40-footer to win the game at the buzzer. So I found the Warriors-Blazer series, and Mike, we kind of had this discussion um, during your afterball a couple weeks ago, I found that five-game series to be incredibly entertaining and suspenseful. And the Blazers led late in all, almost all of those games, if not all of them. 
Lillard and McCollum were really hard to stop and were scoring a lot of points. And it was fascinating to kind of watch the Warriors try to like solve the problem of how to beat this team. And I think the Warriors are going to solve that problem against the Thunder. It'll just be more challenging. And I like to see the better teams win. And so I want to see the Warriors have to kind of puzzle through and fight through a team that's going to be really challenging for them to beat, who I ultimately think they will beat. Well, if the criteria is a five-game series that we call really interesting and really exciting to watch, then this will be really exciting to watch. I'm not saying it's definitely going to go five, but of the three games, okay, a couple things. One, the Warriors trailed late. The Warriors, for a 73-win team, often trail late, and then there's a deluge of points. I mean, they very frequently, you know, that late late in the third period is when they tend to crush the other teams. Um, they, they did win. They, there was a great overtime game, but the two games that the Warriors hosted the uh, Thunder, and of course, they have home field, home court. It's a court. It's not a field. They, uh, it wasn't that close. But it's not about... Um, forecasting if this will be a good series. I think it will. The Thunder give you entertaining series. I just thought that we were on the course for an all-time great series, and I'm more disappointed than excited. Well, I think kind of— Oh, and by the way, by the way, the Thunder got here because of two terrible—the two games they lost in, what was it, two and five? The Spurs got screwed by terrible calls. One game wasn't dispositive, but that game where Ginobili was trying to get the inbounds pass and he was elbowed, which no one had ever seen. Chris Webber was great on that game, by the way. His, his announcing, Chris Webber versus Reggie Miller is, and they're going to give us Reggie Miller with this game, damn it. But so the Spurs wound up losing two games. I'm not saying they should have won. One game they should have won that the refs really screwed them. And one game... You know, there they was were a, they were losing when that they were play losing. Happened. Right, right. They were losing when that happened. But then in another game, they gave the continuation play. So they allowed a three point play, which should have been a two point play. They probably still would have lost that game. But I, that's a factor. I think the Spurs got a little screwed. A little screwed. But okay. I, I think that I, my disappointment is a little bit tempered by the fact that the Spurs just looked slow and decrepit as that series went on. And so the series that we imagined that we would have seen during the regular season was like 67 wins versus 73 wins, greatest defensive team ever in the Spurs versus, you know, greatest offensive team. As the Spurs Thunder series went on, that all went away. That, That possibility of that vanished when you saw kind of how the Spurs were playing. And obviously matchups are different, but I got more excited about seeing Duran and Westbrook play against, you know, Curry, Draymond, and the Warriors as that series Josh, went on. Josh, you, you wrote about San Antonio last week and how they are a model franchise and how they should be able to continue their success. What did this point out about them, though? I mean, we, we hail Popovich, Greg Popovich, because of, um, because of his overall season-long strategic management of that roster, is it just possible that, yeah, they're old and they got tired. They were not prepared to play a team, as you pointed out, Mike, that was so athletic at after having already played 86 games, seven games. I don't think that's what happened. I think what happened is that the Thunder beat the Spurs in the playoffs four years ago. Um, I think that roster, and it was a different roster then. They had Harden and um, Mm -hmm. they did have Ibaka, Durant, and Westbrook. But I think... That core of players gives the Spurs problems with their athleticism. But after you know that happened in 2012, the Spurs came back and won the title a couple years later. And I don't think the Spurs were tired. That is a team more than any other team in the league that's built to withstand the rigors of the regular season because of how deep their roster is. And they won 67 games playing their starters, playing their key players really short minutes compared to what the rest of the league does. And so I think, you know, what happened is that shit happens in the playoffs, especially if you get a matchup that's not favorable to you. But just the way that they've been able to rebuild on the fly, um, win 60% of their games for 19 years in a row, and now the guys that are the key players on that team are young, like Leonard mm-hmm. and LaMarcus Aldridge, and they're surrounded by guys like Danny Green, who's a good role player. I mean, it just seems like they're going to keep on rolling. And the Thunder are great now, but it's all dependent on whether Westbrook and Durant resign in free agency, right? Like, it's not necessarily a recipe for long-term success. And that's not a team that's built on team play. And 
win, I think, if they lose, and I think they probably will against the Warriors, it'll be because Westbrook and or Durant have bad games. And when those guys have bad games, the rest of the team can't compensate both because, you know, those guys are so much better than their teammates, although Adams and Cantor both played really, really well. But because they Adams don't they is... don't they don't play team basketball. Like those guys dominate the ball. And so if they have bad games, then nobody else is shooting, and so they're gonna lose. Right. And we know that the Warriors can do well without their star player because they did and they have. The thing that I want to talk about in the East is the Cavs shooting and how they set a record against the Hawks by making 25 three-pointers in a single game that was the most ever in a game playoffs or regular season. They made 77 threes in that four-game sweep against the Hawks, and they shot 50% from the field. Um, they're averaging 17 threes a game in the playoffs. Just every time you think that we're kind of at the apex of how the three-pointer is changing the game, it just keeps on ratcheting up. I mean, the biggest example was the record set by Steph Curry going from 286 to like 402 in one season. And now, Mike, you have this team that is, you know, they shot a bunch of threes during the regular season. They shot 30 a game. And now they're shooting way more than that, 36 in the postseason. It just seems like the three-pointer just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more dominates the game. Yeah. The Warriors and Blazers set a record for the most threes attempted in a five-game series. And I think the uh, Hawks and Cavs set that record for the four-game series, if I'm not mistaken. And I looked it up. So Warriors and uh, Blazers, I think they combined for 135 threes. In the first and second year of the three-point shot, both of those teams did not attempt 135 in the entire season. I love that individual. It took 15 years before any team made 400 three-pointers and Steph Curry made 400 three-pointers. Well, Mike, you've talked about how Steph Curry making a three is like from an aesthetic standpoint, like the greatest thing in sports. Does it get to a point for you where maybe if it's not a guy named Steph Curry, if it's like Iman Shumpert, like, does it get to a point to you with the Cavs or any other team where you're like, this is too many three-pointers no. from an aesthetic standpoint? Play the, play defense. I mean, <laughs> most of those threes that they were given was because of defensive choices that the Hawks made or defensive choices that they couldn't make, which is – Or J.R. Smith line. had the ball. Yeah, well, but J.R. Smith has always been J.R. Smith. He was a guy who jacked up threes everywhere. They're getting him open. It, to and me, the Cavs made a point of acquiring J.R. Smith yeah, because they mm-hmm. wanted that on their team. Sure. To me, I don't. I mean, I guess some people have said, you know, extend the three point line against Steph, which no. would be the which would be the funniest. That's exactly like Tiger proofing. Who's the guy who would be least affected by an extended three point line? Is Steph Curry? Well, just extended just for him and have it be oh, the right, same yeah. for yeah, every other. Like a player. little moving zone around him, <laughs> like he has diplomatic immunity wherever he goes if he's the ambassador um no i think it's great who's are there people who are against it for any reasons other than i'm old and i'm grumpy like are there articulated reasons that are points of logic to be against the three-point line or it's just different from maybe what we're used to i have problems with it i think that it's weird like how much it distorts the game like i don't from an aesthetic standpoint like watching guys shoot threes that doesn't bother me i think it's weird that there is a line and everyone stands around that line that there's like a line on the court where it's like worth three if you're like an inch to the side and worth two if you're an inch to the other side. And more than any other rule that I can think of in sports, it completely changes the way the game is played in like a non-intuitive way. If you went back like 40 years and you're like, okay, we're going to put in a line and then everyone's going to stand on the other side of the line – and then, you know, maybe one guy will be on the inside. It's weird. But it's just like home runs and home runs are a great thing. I mean, it's just like home runs, whereas Ruth was doing things out homering the league and showing people how maybe wrong they were, or how they failed to conceptualize the role of home runs. And I think the three-pointer is the same thing. And they're both about orbs going a long distance in air, which is the greatest thing to watch. I guess maybe in the future with sports view technology, we'll be able to assign a point value on a gradation scale. So somewhere between a two-point shot is four feet from the basket, and we know a three-point shot is anywhere over, let's say, 25 feet. And everywhere in between, it could be worth 2.1 points, 2.2 I'm actually going to be working on uh, on something like this. That's so good. Hopefully, we'll, we'll have it on slate soon. You, you got to introduce it to the Filipino Basketball League first. Should it be more than three points at some points? Harlem Globetrotters, four-point yeah, four shot. Yeah, four-point shot. Let's save this for a future discussion. <laughs>
Okay, we're going to take a quick break now, but uh, when we're back, we will talk about basketball shoes. Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, Foreign Policy CEO and Editor. Join us each week for FP's podcast, The Editor's Roundtable, where we bring together experts to triage the big issues of the day with emergency room-like urgency and some mayhem. Subscribe to the ER on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much. There were shots fired on Slate.com on Monday. I thought the week was going to get off to a peaceful start, but no. Deputy Editor John Swansburg published a piece headlined, Why Does the World's Best Basketball Player Wear Such Corny Sneakers? John is referring to Steph Curry and the Curry 2, the Warriors guard's signature shoe for Under Armour. The sneaker has been an enormous retail success. The Wall Street Journal reported that Under Armour revenue jumped 30% to just over a billion in Q1 of this year, with that largely attributable to a 64% bump in revenue in the Curry-powered small footwear business. A Morgan Stanley analyst estimated back in March that sales of Curry's shoe line would eclipse those of LeBron James this year, putting him in second in the shoe game behind only Michael Jordan. But as John writes in his story, the Curry 2 has no cultural cachet. Sneakerheads don't want to buy it. You won't see anyone wearing them on the street. Anyone, that is, except for John Swansburg, who is in studio with us and wearing some corny-ass shoes right now. (laughs) Only because you made me. (laughs) What's up, John? (laughs) Great to be here. Um, Put your shoes up on the table so we can where we can see them. So I think we might have done this in a previous segment. We're going to have Mike Pesca... Describe these shoes for our listeners. You want me to take it off, Mike, and put it right on? No, the table? no. I need to see the interplay between <laughs> shoe want, and yeah, foot look, and ankle. Look at how that meets the cuff. Mm-hmm. Um, th- we have this particular color combo is colorway. A, yeah, colorway. <laughs> a light gray and a blue that's a bit lighter than royal. Um, I would it describe is, it as an electric blue. Yeah, it's an it's an electric blue. If one team had to wear these curries, they'd be the Charlotte Hornets, and <clears throat> and it seems to me that there, the ankle seems rather thin. It's high, It's a high top. Is it a high top or a mid top? It's a high top. It's a high top, but it doesn't seem very high. The lacing is nice. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, ventilation opportunities. It would seem. <laughs> but is yeah, that a two tone lace. It seems it is a two tone lace. Yeah. It's uh, the lace itself is teal, but it's flecked with black. Yeah, it seems almost like the prototype before they make the real shoe. It doesn't seem that substantial or sturdy. And I do have to say, of all the names for a guy whose uniform number isn't two and who normally shoots three, the Curry 2 is the stupidest. Well, in in defense of the name, it is the second iteration of Curry's signature line with Under Armour. So I think you should go right to (laughs) (laughs) 3.0. The Curry 3 will be coming out before next season. So at that point, maybe they should just stay with the Curry 3 forever. Yeah. I do have to say, the shoe you're wearing, the Charlotte Hornets version, is much better than the Mother's Day version, which is, of course, pink and hideous. Yeah. I mean, I would argue that none of the colorways are particularly um, great aesthetically. I think that's one of the problems that Under Armour's had. They don't don't have a way with color that some of their competitors do. Uh, Certainly the competitors in the the lifestyle market. Oh, no? Uh, Oh, no? Because we're looking at a rotating 360 Curry 2 that is the color of Dippin' Dots, the, <laughs> the, the iced candy of the future. Mike is showing a photo of the surprise party colorway. <laughs> Not one of my favorites either. Uh, although I do give them points for whimsy on that one. Yeah. So this is a widely held view. It's not just the three of us in this studio and Stefan in D.C. Like nobody who is into sneakers for the aesthetics – and for like the broader kind of sneaker culture likes these shoes, right? I mean, that's my feeling. I, I got some pushback on Twitter this morning from at least one uh, gentleman who seemed to have some credentials as a follower of the sneaker world. <laughs> What's that... his name? Kevin Sturry? <laughs> <laughs> I should investigate his connections to Steph. Um, saying that, you know, may- that maybe I'm uh, old and out of touch for not realizing that these actually do have more uh, cred than – I gave them credit for, but I really don't think so. I mean, I, I surveyed a bunch of sneakerheads of my acquaintance, and everyone agreed with me uh, in my observation, anecdotal observation, that you just don't see these sneakers in the places where you see the sneakers that are quote unquote hot among sneakerheads. The new Slate offices, in fact, is very close to Fulton Mall in Brooklyn, uh, where if you are into sneakers and you step onto the street wearing anything less than fresh, you feel um, kind of lame. And I've never seen a curry there, and I've been I've been strolling that that lane quite uh, avidly in the last uh, month or so. 
Um, I asked a friend of mine who lives near uh, Bishop Laughlin High School uh, in Brooklyn, uh, where I used to live, and uh, every morning the, the kids getting off the subway would be sporting the, the coolest sneakers I'd ever seen, and he says he never sees a Curry 2 there. And even in the Bay Area, where I, I spent a week on vacation recently, I was I had my eyes uh, peeled, and I just didn't see that many uh, people wearing the Curry 2. Even at Game 2 of the opening round of the NBA playoffs, I saw one pair on the subway platform. But they don't really seem to be a street sneaker. They, and, and, you know, uh, Under Armour and Cur- even Curry himself have basically acknowledged that the Curry 2 is a shoe to wear on the basketball court, which, as I say in the piece, is not a bad thing for a basketball sneaker. But they haven't really made the push yet, I don't think, to have that lifestyle appeal that a lot of other basketball sneakers do have. And that traditionally has been a sort of sine qua non of being a truly great signature shoe. That It has the crossover appeal. Isn't that their play then to not be the crossover shoe to sort of tell basketball players that, hey, the shoe is better than the Nikes that you're wearing to go to school in? I think, yeah, I think that could well be their move. I mean, Curry has said that he'd like his sneaker to to look good with jeans, and he claims that the Curry 3 due this fall will, in fact, have more lifestyle elements. But I, yeah, I I sort of came around to that that opinion that Under Armour is a performance brand – uh, more so than its competitors, Nike and Adidas, which obviously do performance sneakers, but also have for a long time done uh, lifestyle and fashion uh, stuff as well. Under Armour started out as a performance company. It was founded by Kevin Plank, who played football at Maryland. And his first product was designing a sort of undergarment, a T-shirt that would wick away moisture better than the cotton shirts that uh, Maryland wore under their uniforms at the time. And their competitive advantage from the mid-90s until now has been making really good performance athletic gear and not stressing this sort of you know street aesthetic. Uh, and so I think there's, a, there's an argument to be made that they should, they should stick with that. And I spoke to a, an analyst at Deutsche bank who follows this industry. And he said he thought that was definitely the move for the company. They're not going to beat Adidas and Nike at the lifestyle game, at least at this point. And they should make that push. And also that Steph Curry is a good avatar for that approach because he's a type of player that a lot of young people like, a lot of young people want to play like. And so he's a good face for a brand that just makes a good basketball shoe. So at first, my reaction upon hearing about your column was, oh, who cares? It's (laughs) appreciate typical. Appreciate the benefit (laughs) of the doubt there, buddy. Oh, who cares about the opinions of these snooty (laughs) sneaker guys? What matters is the on-court performance. But, you know, let's talk – let's think about aesthetics. Let's think about artistic choices. I think it's great that there is a sneaker culture. And if Curry isn't part of it, I guess they could say, oh, this is just our strategy all along. But it does seem like it's a byproduct of, in some cases, lackluster design. Not design in terms of being good on a basketball court. But some of those color combinations are just horrific. And you done (laughs) decided wrong. But then again, I don't think – like as I'm going through – you're talking about Under Armour. And when I think about someone wearing an Under Armour T-shirt, it's, you know, uh, something to wick away moisture, very functional. They could kind of look good but uh, at the gym. But away from the gym, they look kind of dorky. And I'm on the site. Dwayne The Rock Johnson has paired with Under Armour to bring some T-shirts with uh, bulls and steers. But they do have some T-shirts like a Rocky Balboa T-shirt and a Star Wars Stormtrooper T-shirt. And there's just something about an Under Armour T-shirt that's trying to be something other than, you know, you wear while lifting weights that is not getting it right and trying too hard. So maybe you can make the case that these are the most successful a shoe can be while totally failing on everything other than what their stated purpose is to be good at basketball. I mean, if you have Steph Curry as a sponsor of the shoes, who's so wildly popular, and they are actually good for basketball, you know, how – it seems like that level of popularity is about as maxed out as it can be given those two items. Well, John, I think the question that the piece raises that's really interesting is that throughout the like modern history of the NBA, having a signature shoe has been the pathway to broader cultural relevance, starting with Jordan, up through LeBron, and now through Steph. And the question is, is Steph Curry carving out a different pathway here Or as he kind of has professed, does he want to have a similar path as Jordan did, as LeBron did, in creating this shoe that people want to wear off the court? 
Right. And I, I mean, I don't know the answer to that question. I, you know, I sort of speculate about it in the piece. I think he said, he said to Soul Collector during an All-Star Weekend interview that he does want the sneaker to have the lifestyle appeal. Like you said, there has been this tradition since Jordan of um, wanting to have that kind of crossover cultural appeal. And for obvious reasons, I mean, and they're not entirely aesthetic reasons. I mean, Jordan is still making $100 million a year uh, from sneaker sales. Uh, this is a statistic that was in Ethan Sherwood Strauss's uh, fantastic ESPN.com piece about how Under Armour landed Curry and stole him away from Nike. And during, the, I think, the entirety of his career for the Bulls, he made something like $95 million in, in, in salary playing basketball. So it's incredibly lucrative to Michael Jordan that he has a sneaker that is still so sought after. The other really interesting fact was that Nike hired away the guy who designed the curry for Under Armour. And so while we're just, you know, all shitting on the shoe and Nike must have either seen something they liked or thought that they could um, hurt Under Armour by signing this guy away. Yeah, I think Nike, you know, is looking uh, over its shoulder. I mean, there's no Nike is still incredibly dominant. I mean, just despite the fact that Under Armour has been performing so well in recent years and that the Curry 2 has, has been such a hit, Nike still has, you know, depending on who you listen to, between 90 and 95% of the uh, basketball sneaker market sewn up. I mean, that's a massive uh, percentage. But it's also a really hard uh, market share to defend when you have that much and there's a competitor who's coming after you with the MV, two-time MVP and, and possibly the most popular player in basketball, you know, that that's going to scare you. Now, whether they looked at the Curry 2 and said, oh, we want some design like the surprise party sneaker <laughs> or whether they said we, we can throw some money at this guy and just sort of like, you know, kneecap this upstart company – I sort of guess it's more the latter. The guy they hired away had worked at Nike previously. You know, I think that he's surely a talented designer. But, you know, I, I, I do think that Nike is concerned and legitimately so. I think the, the Northern Lights is the other one you should be looking at. But, John, isn't part <laughs> of the story here is the miscalculation that Nike perhaps made about Stephen Curry himself as a salesman of sneakers? Because the conventional wisdom in the sneaker business has always been that the people that sell shoes are bigger, more athletic, Jordan, LeBron, Magic Johnson type players, and that a point guard has never been a successful sponsor of a signature shoe at those levels. Is Nike just sort of bruised here and trying to cover up for its miscalculation that, oh, Stephen Curry is redesigning the game and we made a mistake by letting him go. Yeah, I mean, I think they did make uh, a big mistake in not getting him. I mean, the the ESPN.com story was was really uh, delicious in describing just how badly they botched their effort to sign him. I mean, they had him. He wore Nike at Davidson in college. He was initially signed to a Nike contract uh, when he started in the NBA. It would have been seemingly very easy for them if they'd really tried to get him to stay. And I, I don't think it's true that point guards have They called him been... Stefan in their presentation. <laughs> yeah, you know how that goes. Yeah. Stephen. And they put they up call... a slide with Kevin Durant, um, Kevin Durant's name on it that they, they recycled. They called, him Rugnet, they called him Rugned in the, <laughs> in the presentation. Um, yeah, they, they, really, they really blew it. But I think, uh, as, as you suggested, like, I think they also just weren't really trying that hard because they, he didn't look to Nike like uh, the A-list stars that they've brought, you know, that they've been endorsing since Jordan. He doesn't look like LeBron, doesn't look like Kobe. Um, Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook, who is a point guard, but who has just a completely different affect on and off the court. Uh, plays a right. much more volatile and at-the-rim game and just has the swagger uh, and attitude that, you know, feels closer to Kobe and, and to some degree Jordan. Um, and Steph, you know, he, he does not have like a paucity of swagger in his own way on the court, but he's a much sweeter guy off the court. He doesn't have the edge of a Charles Barkley, another Nike figure. And I think they both as a both personality wise and game wise, he didn't look to them in 2013 like the future of branded sports apparel. And, you know, in Nike's defense, how many of us thought that he was going to make quite the leap that he made between 2013 and the present? I mean, it's it's pretty uh, you know, otherworldly what he's been doing. So, you know, it's easy to, to look back in hindsight and say, wow, Nike really blew that one. I think they did blow it, but I think a lot of us didn't see Curry coming quite at the level he's playing right now. Well, that's in Nike's defense to Nike's offense. They did have to rename the Joe Paterno building and they did have to run away from Tiger Woods. So maybe a sweet kind of spokesperson <laughs> is the good zig to the zag that they've been and Don't forget Lance Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. Nike. Yeah, they maybe could've... Nike could get a little less uh, edgy and more, oh, thank God we have a uh, secular saint among our ranks. That's true. That would have been smart. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, People who are listening to this can't see it, but John has brought a prop 
into uh, the studio, and I don't want this to be a MacGuffin. I don't want the uh, I want this gun to uh, go off in the third act. So tell us uh, what you have there. Uh, yeah, just on a lark, I decided I would bring in this this prop. I have a um, a Patrick Ewing signature sneaker, which this is actually a, a retroed version of the sneaker that would have been made in I think 1989 or 90. Um, and, and as I understand it, Ewing was one of the – maybe the first player to have a signature shoe that he's essentially manufactured himself. He didn't sign uh, with one of the one of the big um, athletic footwear companies. He sort of went out on his own and he made this incredibly chunky high top. Uh, it's like – it looks like it weighs a, a ton. Like if you were in the mafia and you wanted to like make a guy swim with the fishes but you were out of concrete, you could like slap <laughs> a pair of these on him. He'd probably go to the bottom of the East River pretty pretty quick. Um <laughs> And they're just like – I brought them in because to my eye, they're – they probably in 89, if you looked at them, were pretty ugly. But now they have this kind of um, retro appeal. There's nostalgia is a huge driver, I think, uh, among sneakerhead predilections. And even though the Air Jordan remains incredibly popular, particularly the old ones, um, I think you know some of that is the great design of Tinker Hatfield, the, the legendary designer who worked with Nike. But some of it I think is just like kids remembering how badly they wanted a pair of Jordan 4s when they were seven and their mom said no. Uh, and so the, I think the Ewing points that up to some degree. I love this Ewing sneaker, but looking at it, I can't really defend it on aesthetic <laughs> grounds. It just makes me think of 1989 uh, yeah. and I, in a way that, I, that I'm fond of. And so I, I think it's worth acknowledging that. I didn't get into that in the piece, but nostalgia is a huge uh, bit of fuel for sneaker obsession. And who knows, 20 years from now, people might be looking back at the Curry 2 on my foot and say, that was so awesome. I loved those ugly sneakers. I wanted them so badly. My mom wouldn't buy them for me. And, and you, they might you, be scooping them up. She did offer them to me in Party Patrol. What's the name of that? Surprise Party. Surprise she was willing party. to buy the surprise, surprise party, party, but they were a little... Yeah. Yeah. As I look at the Ewing, I, a couple questions come to mind. One, certified subtracts two inches off the vertical jump. <laughs> I mean, they weigh, what, 23 pounds? Here, you can heft one. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, jeez. <laughs> um, secondly... Oh, wow. When you wear them, are you supposed to keep the tag on? Because the tag, which depicts <laughs> Patrick Ewing in a what can only be described as late model Penn State jersey, you know, very plain number 33. Uh, are you supposed to keep the tag on? No, I left the tag on uh, because I'm returning this pair because they're too small, believe it or not, <laughs> even though they're gigantic. But you, th- there is, I think, uh, an argument to be made for leaving the uh, fake basketball keychain on. Yeah. That's an aesthetic choice right, I've seen people make on Fulton Mall. The treads on these Ewings say Patrick Ewing. So if there was ever a crime scene, <laughs> no, a cop who's not well-versed in sneaker headery is going to say, I think we have our man, <laughs> Patrick Ewing. Uh, Let's leave the audience wanting a little bit more here. I just have to read um, one phrase from it. Okay. This basketball shoe was designed in 1989 with the assistance of Patrick Ewing and meets the exacting requirements <laughs> of professional basketball. Well, there you go. Uh, at least New York Knicks basketball. All right, John, are uh, you going to wear those in public, by the way? <laughs> the Ewings? Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm All psyched right. about it. John Swansburg is Slate's deputy editor. The piece is called Why Does the World's Best Basketball Player Wear Such Corny Sneakers? Thank you, John. Thank you for having me. Amir Adaran, a professor at the University of Ottawa who has a PhD in immunology, wrote a piece for the Harvard Public Health Review last week headlined Off the Podium, Why Public Health Concerns for Global Spread of Zika Virus means that Rio's 2016 Olympic Games must not proceed. He wrote that Zika infection is more dangerous and Brazil's outbreak more extensive than scientists reckoned a short time ago, which leads to a bitter truth. The 2016 Olympic and Paralympic Games must be postponed, moved, or both as a precautionary concession. The WHO so far has not advised anything close to that. Um, In the most recent advisory, they've said, that pregnant women continue to be advised not to travel to areas with ongoing Zika virus transmission. And uh, the WHO also noted that the games will take place during Brazil's wintertime when there are fewer active mosquitoes and the risk of being bitten is lower. Uh, We ran a piece in Slate last week that said that the Harvard Public Health Review piece was fear-mongering, essentially, that Zika hasn't risen to the level where the Olympics should be canceled. And then similarly, Major League Baseball decided not to play games in Puerto Rico. And he wrote that they shouldn't have done that and that there's no reason not to hold that series and that Zika would have to be far more contagious or far more likely to take root in the home countries where people travel to the Olympics or to Puerto Rico from. Uh, Stefan, what do you make of this back and forth? I don't 
know if it's fear-mongering as much as raising uh, some legitimate questions. Uh, and he makes uh, several points, right, Adiran, in that piece for uh, Harvard Public Health. One is that Rio is the worst place in Brazil for the number of cases so far. It's a bad strain of Zika. It could help speed the spread globally of Zika. And speeding the spread will slow public health authorities' abilities to come up with defensive for this and spare us with the Olympic ideals. If the Olympic ideals are about serving humanity, well, a good way to serve humanity is to protect humanity by not exposing it to disease. Um, So I think these are fair points to make. Uh, Maybe it's a little late to make them, but you know, I think the suggestion that you move the Olympics right away is kind of crazy. You can't do that right now. Um, well, you can't. London, you can't. Australia, Melbourne. You could do it in six months or a year. You're not going to do it in July. But you can, Stefan. You can't think that the Olympic ideals argument is a good argument. I mean, to to say that the Olympics aren't living up to their ideals with respect to Zika, the Olympics have never lived up to their ideals with respect to anything. So, well, this just you just get to add one more <laughs> ideal that the Olympics don't live up to. Sure. The the, the article did seem to me to be fear mongering. That's true. And yet it was in not a fly-by-night publication and not done by a man without credentials. So I don't take it as – I wouldn't necessarily take his advice as gospel from a logistic standpoint. You can't really uplift the Olympics at this point. Also from a personal standpoint, everyone has to, you know, do what's right for them. But – uh, I think it's useful in that in the forum, in the Harvard forum and from that guy, you're raising serious issues about how p- terrible everything with the process in Brazil has been, how terrible with the Japanese voting now it looks like it's been. Um, and what do you do to agitate for reform unless you make some big, bold statements that maybe we shouldn't necessarily take as gospel, but in terms of underlining how serious the missteps have been, this definitely does it. Just like that ESPN article that we talked about with how bad the harbor is. Maybe it'll be a good day and maybe there won't be floating gunk when the uh, triathlon takes place, but maybe it will. And without those horrific pictures, would it really arrest the attention? So much bad stuff. I always think that there's so much hype before every Olympics, every international sporting event. There's always so much hype and it never lives up to the hype. I really think that with Rio, there's going to be some bad stuff. I just think that- Can I just add one thing there, Mike? And and that's that it's not, let's just be clear. It's not just this guy, Otteron. Mm -hmm. Other prominent- medical officials have suggested that it would be prudent to do this, including Arthur Kaplan, who runs the medical ethics program at NYU. He says, what the hell's the difference if we do it in six months or if we do it in July? Obviously, a lot of logistics, but that's the, you know, that's the, the, that's the precautionary approach. But you're, you're totally right about that, Mike. And that's every Olympics, particularly the recent ones that have been held in places that um, have either financial pollution or other concerns, Athens, Beijing, now Rio, um, in soccer awarding the World Cup to places that might not be prepared. Sochi um, might be some problems in Sochi, perhaps there were. Um, So this is always overhyped. Then you get there and it's like for two weeks, the people that put on the Olympics, the local authorities and the outsiders who have been brought in and paid gazillions of dollars to make sure that the buses run on time, the Olympics tend to go off pretty flawlessly. And these the, these concerns are overblown until you have to pay the bills, of course. But with the World Cup, there really were concerns and people died because of uh, highways that weren't correctly constructed. And, you know, after the world media leaves, right. very few reporters do reports. But when they do, you're like, my God, it was because of the World Cup that there are dead people in Rio. I think that you're right, Mike, that there's a risk that because the Olympics are always kind of terrible in the same way over and over again, that there's just this like baseline where if it doesn't move too far up or down from that baseline, we're just used to it. And so we don't care or we just don't think it's that big a deal because that's what the Olympics always are. But I think A, if the baseline is really high, then that should probably mean that we should care about it all the time rather than not just seeing it as a stable thing. But I think you're right that given the political situation in Brazil with Dilma being impeached, given um, Zika as another thing that people are clearly concerned about and, you know, rightfully so, I think as journalists, we should be thinking about the ways in which this is different and might be different. 
as opposed to the ways in which this is the same as every Olympics. But back to Bonnie Ford's story about the water and Brazil. And we talked about it with her and praised her for it at the time. The thing I appreciated about it was that she was very upfront about the things that she knew and the things that she didn't know and the things that scientists didn't know. And this piece is polemical and there is a place for that if you feel like very strongly that the Olympics should be canceled and people need to pay attention to this, then that is a perfectly appropriate mode. But what I feel like I wanted to read and needed to read is somebody who is more kind of careful. And especially when it comes to disease, where you don't want to get people afraid unnecessarily. And if something's in the Harvard Public Health Review, you're like, okay, this should be definitive and cautious. Like that's kind of what I would expect with a publication with that name. Well, let me let me throw something else out there, which I haven't seen in too many places, but I experienced uh, in South Africa for the World Cup. And I don't even know that I agree with it, but I'll just air it because I haven't seen it. There is a little first worldism going on here. I mean, every Olympics, you could argue Beijing, China, number two economy in the world. And of course, if they want to make Beijing pollution aside, a functional city, uh, it'll function. But every other Olympic site and every other World Cup site, save for South Africa, and again, you know, South Africa is a G20 country right at the edge of the G20. But they're all in what we used to call first world or north, you know, as in north versus south countries. And you can say... um, Well, there are two ways to look at it. You could say, well, we want our international sporting events to go seamlessly and flawlessly, so we'll only have them in a handful of countries that we call first world countries. And that seems terrible. So you say, oh, yes, let's expand to the third world. Again, I'm using kind of an antiquated phrase. Once you do expand to the third world, things aren't going to go as well, and you have to accept some of that. But the other side of that is maybe this sheds a spotlight on the conditions in Rio. And Rio, or Brazil, has gotten a bit worse uh, since they actually won the games in terms of their economy. So, you know, it is kind of a pampered – I'm not – saying that Zika isn't extremely serious or the situation uh, health-wise and with the waterways and so forth in Rio aren't serious. But it is a little pampered to say, oh, I need, you know, four-star treatment for my international games and it's fine to call this the international festival, but please, we'll never go anywhere south of the equator to actually hold the games. Well, except that the IOC and FIFA take this high-minded approach toward awarding the games, that we are going to be the conduit for betterment of the world, that we are awarding the games to developing nations because we will improve those nations. And that always turns out to be false. Um, South Africa, Greece, Brazil, these countries are all in tremendous debt because of the burden that was put upon them by FIFA to be responsible for the vast, vast, vast majority of the expenditures um, that were required to host these events. Stefan, we should also just note that I read the WHO travel advisory about um, pregnant women, and Mm -hmm. there will be a lot of people traveling to Brazil, um, whether they're athletes or you know, members of organizing committees are just fans who are women of childbearing age. And so when we talk about the risk here, I think we should be clear that, you know, there are a lot of women, you know, athlete women on the U.S. national soccer team have talked about it who are afraid to go there. And what about female journalists? I mean, it seems like male journalists have one choice to make and female journalists certainly have another because of this situation. Yeah. And so how do you feel like, Stefan, that plays into the responsibility of organizers and what kind of conversation we should be having here? Well, that's the conversation we should be having, right? That there are populations that are at greater risk than other populations. And Arthur Kaplan makes this argument. He spoke with New York Magazine and he points out that we don't have a good diagnostic test. And I'm quoting here, we don't have a good screening test to protect the blood supply, which is a big issue because if pregnant or fertile women get exposed to Zika in a transfusion, it's a real problem. We don't have a vaccine. We don't really have a good way to kill all the mosquitoes yet. If you wait six months or nine months, you might get all of those things. So in the meantime, you're inviting half a million spectators plus these athletes who are very prominent and are going to be asked to perform with this additional burden of fear 
So it sort of sets a precedent that we've never seen in a in a major athletic event like this. Yeah, and I mean, like we could make arguments and counter arguments all day. We'll end the segment shortly, but Brazil has six million tourists a year. A huge percentage of that five hundred thousand are coming from the U.S., mm-hmm. where Zika's not a problem, and the public health experts that I've read predict that it will remain that way just because of you know conditions Climate here. And- Etc. Um, and, and, and could I just chime in with the again the pampered Westerner? So we we are quite worried, and we should be about the what? How many tourists? Fifty thousand that will be going to the five hundred thousand. Five hundred thousand. Wow. What about the fact that Brazil has mm-hmm. two hundred million people, and the grow and the age curve of Brazil is such that most of the women are of childbearing age? Well, the other way to look at it would be people going there from all around the world in a way that they probably wouldn't be otherwise, and bringing the virus back to their countries, potentially. So that is the other way to look at it. Okay, let's move on to afterballs since we've solved that problem. Uh, Hope Solo <laughs> says she's not going to go out of her hotel room, though, so those cities will be safe. <laughs> and so will many of the people of Brazil. Tinker Hatfield is the guy who designed the Air Jordans. And I enjoyed that detail in John's piece that Hatfield would always talk about, you know, the a Jordan very one one of the models was like modeled after like a fighter aircraft. We need that sort of uh, swagger in the sneaker design game, not just in the sneaker wearers, but in the sneaker designers. So my uh, my shoes off to Tinker Hatfield, Mike. What is your Hatfield or your McCoy? Let's go with uh, Braves bad stats. The Braves <laughs> so bad. Uh, last week, it was true that every team who has played at Turner Field has won a game except for the Atlanta Braves. You know that Turner Field's their home park, right, Josh? I do know that. Yes, but then they took one from the Phils, so it turns out the Braves are tied for last among many other teams in the National League with number of wins at Turner Field. Their home record ain't good. But what about their power numbers, you might ask? They haven't been hitting a lot of home runs. In fact... I'll give you a baseline and then ask you to guess how many home runs the Braves have hit. The baseline is the major league average. As of uh, this recording, 40 major league teams have averaged 40 home runs. How many do you think the Braves have hit? Josh? Uh, 10. Uh, Stefan, higher or lower than 10? 12. It is lower than 10. They have hit nine home runs. (laughs) And to give you some idea of how bad that is, I love going into the next level stats because, for instance, on ESPN, there are stats, expanded stats, and expanded two batting stats. And every page has an indictment of the Braves' power hitting. For instance, the expanded stats will tell you that uh, in terms of extra base hits, in case you were wondering, oh, are all those would-be home runs just dying at the warning track or winding in the gap? No. Major league average for extra base hits, 111. Braves, 62. So not quite at a quarter of that. That would be very hard to do, but really terrible. And then at bats per home run, which of course will be a function of uh, of home runs, major league average. So major league hitters, big, big disparity between the American and the National League. I blame pitchers, but major league average, Every 35 at-bats, someone goes yard, as they say. Don't blame Bartolo Colon. <laughs> That's right. Pitchers minus Bartolo. <laughs> right. The Bartolo-less sample. So every 35 at-bats, someone's going to uh, touch them all. Oh, not so with the Atlanta Braves. Every 135 at-bats, there's a nice symmetry in that number. The Atlanta Braves are not a good hitting team in any way. They're actually third from the bottom in on-base percentage. Therefore, they're slugging plus on-base is the worst in baseball as well. But they're on a pace to be, compared to league average, the worst home run hitting team that I could find. I've gone back to uh, 1927. If you could find a worse team, a more underperforming team, as compared to league average, let me know. Also, if anyone could help me with the Braves' hard hit rate, I've found individual Braves, but I cannot find the Braves as a team hard hit rate. I would expect it would be around uh, the mid-teens. So Joe Sheehan does this newsletter um, for subscribers. Good writer. Good newsletter. He did a comparison of who would win the Atlanta Braves or the staff of the MLB Network. Mm. So the lineup for MLB Network, these are people who are former players who are now broadcasters. It would be Eric Burns, Carlos Pena, 
Preston Wilson, Cliff Lloyd, Mike Lowell, Harold Reynolds, Mark Derosa, and Dave Valley. Yeah. They well, might Dave have, Valley was a terrible. Valley. They might have problems at yeah. the catching position. Yeah. But um, – and then at pitcher, they would have Pedro Martinez, which I think they're just going to win right there. Yeah. The, the Braves hitters couldn't hit Pedro. Al Leiter, Ron Darling, and Joe McGrain. So maybe a little bit old in the, in the starting pitching ranks. But, but crafty. He, he goes through. It's like a, it's closer than you would think. Braves versus guys who've been retired for 20 years. All right, Stefan, what's your Tinker Hatfield? All right, I was watching some bowling on ESPN a couple of weeks ago, and it was not the PBA Downham's Waste Services Greater Jonesboro Open. Downham's has been proudly serving Northeast Arkansas since 1975. No, it was another Professional Bowlers Association event, and it was weird because there were two groups of bowlers wearing the same ugly logo-splattered shirts. They were taking turns. There was a woman among them and a dude who was bowling with two hands. That's a thing. There were 10 two-handed bowlers in the uh, PBA Players Championship a few months ago, and one of them, Australian Jason Belmonte, is a three-time PBA Player of the Year. But I'm not here to talk about 200 bowlers Instead, let's talk team bowling. The PBA League was held over a weekend at the Bayside Bowl in Portland, Maine. ESPN spread out the coverage over four weeks because why wouldn't you want to spread it out over four weeks? Five bowlers on each of eight teams, among them the Motown Muscle and the Brooklyn Styles. Those were the good names. Bad name, I think, the LAX, mm. as in strike, mm-hmm. trying too hard. Mm. I think you guys agree. Not mm. a good name. Uh, there was a draft. A couple of two-handed bowlers were taken, two women, and this is Baker format team bowling. Each of the five bowlers rolls two frames per game. It moves right along. A lot of high fives, a lot of fist pumps. The highlight was a perfect Baker 300 game rolled by the Dallas Strikers, which was capped by a triple in the 10th by 52-year-old team captain and PBA Hall of Famer Norm Duke, who looks like a cross between Mike Shanahan and Alfred E. Newman. I did see that. But I did not tune back in for the finals between the GoBowling.com Dallas Strikers and the Geico New York City WTT Kingpins. Here's how it wrapped up. Elias Cup. Yes, the Elias Cup. One weekend a year, the PBA League seems like a pretty modest effort compared to, say, Billie Jean King's World Team Tennis or the NFL. But perhaps the reason for its downsize ambitions is rooted in history, specifically the short history of the National Bowling League, which was recounted last year in a four-part series in Bowler's Journal International by senior correspondent J.R. Schmidt. The NBL was founded in 1960 by a Los Angeles businessman named Leonard Homel. It was a dream of Leonard's, and it made some sense because bowling was huge. As Schmidt notes, six and a half million Americans bowled in sanctioned leagues in 1960. That's one out of every 17 adult men and women. There were a bunch of bowling shows on TV, including Jackpot Bowling, on which someone won $75,000 for rolling six straight strikes. Homel got people to fork over up to $50,000 in franchise fees. He got investors to build venues for the league, some with theater seating down the lanes, one of which is still standing in suburban Detroit. The league held a 30-round draft. (laughs) Selections included Mickey Mantle, and Yogi Berra, who both owned bowling alleys. Mantle and Berra didn't join the new league, and neither did top bowlers like Don Carter and Dick Weber because they were making more money bowling for the new PBA. Carter rejected a big offer from the Fort Worth Panthers, $1,000 a week, an ownership stake in the team, a piece of the gate, and half interest in a goat farm. That is true. The league did manage to sign a couple of big names, including Ed Lubansky, His nickname had to be The Big, right? And it debuted in October 1961. It didn't get a TV contract. Attendance was low, $3 per ticket. The prices were too high. And after a few months, some of the 10 franchises started folding. The league staggered to its finals, where the Detroit Thunderbirds swept the Twin Cities skippers in a best-of-five match. I want to go to one of those uh, bowling alleys that has the theater seating. 
and the seats are like pointed right down the alley. It looked like a lot of fun. It looked like a good view. You could probably sell the seats next to the pens for a lot of money. I think this is a, a billion dollar idea. I think the world just wasn't ready for it back then. Hey, Josh, what's your Tinker Hatfield? On May 11th, 2016, that was just a few days ago. Wow. BuzzFeed published a piece headlined, holy shit, this theory about why O.J. Simpson might have killed the colon Ron explains a lot. The subhead was, uh, he might have the football disease, you guys. The first paragraph reads as follows. O.J., the juice, Simpson, <laughs> play, played in the NFL for 11 seasons before hanging up his uniform to pursue acting. Hanging up his uniform. <laughs> <laughs> But could it be that the brain damage incurred from his decade playing football led to aggressive and violent behavior and possibly to a double homicide? Question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point, all caps, perhaps. Then they kind of run through the whole OJ thing and what CTE is. And then at the bottom, there's a poll. So once, you know, you BuzzFeed reader have read this article, let's let's hear your response in this poll. If this is true, does this change your opinion of OJ or the murder of Nicole and Ron? Question mark, exclamation point. Whoa, he totally did it. This makes so much sense. Or nope, he's innocent. This is dumb. I'd like to have this is dumb as, an, as a kind of appended to the end of every sentence. Then there was, I didn't think he did it before, but all caps, now I do. Exclamation point. There was also, for the illiterate uh, BuzzFeed crowd, there's a video accompanying this article, and I want to play you. It's like six minutes long. Here's the first 30 seconds or so. So what do you know about football Hall of Famer O.J. Simpson? Not much. You don't know much? I know he was like allegedly killed someone. He drove around in a car. Yeah. Uh, they chased him. Well, Orenthal James Simpson, winner of the Heisman Trophy. From 1969 to 1977, he played running back for the Buffalo Bills. From 1978 to 1979, he played running back for the 49ers. They called him the Juice. The Juice? Yeah. Why? OJ. Oh, okay. Ha! thought that was kind of obvious. Yeah, it was. <laughs> so they either found the dumbest people on earth to write. I'm not discounting that. I don't want to be too mean, but uh, that's one possibility. Or they wrote this story and this faux naive kind of gee whiz hey, guys, let's learn about something we know nothing about sort of style that just drives me absolutely insane. And I think it's a part of this, like, let's make news accessible for millennials by insulting everyone's intelligence and just acting like we're all, like, 10 years old and just know absolutely nothing about anything. That is, I think, what's driving this. But the thing that I found interesting about the response to this article – a lot of people on Twitter and elsewhere said rightly that it was terrible. But the nature of the response was it was offensive to like ask the question about whether OJ had CTA. That wasn't the entirety of the response, but a lot of the response was, you know, it's in poor taste. You know, why would you ask that? That is stupid. But that shows how bad an article it is because the offense should be it's in poor taste to take this actually good question and treat it like this to convince me kind of an idiot that it's in poor taste to ask it in the first place. Yeah. I mean I edited a piece for Slate back in 2007 that asked this exact same question, which like A, points up like how late this is and lame it is to pretend like this is some novel idea like, whoa, there's a football brain thing and OJ, like, that blew my mind, man. But did you like, explain why he was called OJ in your piece? <laughs> no, I mean, so there is some reader just, service here yeah. um, that, that we did not <laughs> and Slate, provide. And Slate did not have the sound effect of the, the liquid being poured into a glass. We did not. No, this was a, this was text. You had to make that sound effect in your in your head. So this was like much earlier in a period when we were just learning about CTE and it was kind of a question that's on people's minds. And I think it's a question that's like natural that people would have. And I think it's one that you can try to answer in a serious minded way where you actually learn the material and talk to people who are experts. One of the other problems is that Dr. Bennett Amalu 
said in an interview in January that he would bet his medical license that OJ had CTE. And Stefan, as we've discussed before, you shouldn't necessarily take everything that Ben and Amalu says seriously. <laughs> and you shouldn't bet your medical license if you're a doctor. <laughs> That's Let's another good point. For doctors. But I mean, I, I didn't even read like all the passages from this BuzzFeed story. So before we talk about OJ, you should know that there's this football disease <laughs> called chronic traumatic encephalopathy discovered by Dr. Ben and Amalu, who first diagnosed it in 2002. Stefan can maybe tell you that 43 things that are wrong with that sentence. But the other thing that I found interesting in conclusion is that BuzzFeed changed the story post-publication. They do this sometimes, don't they? And the headlines that I read to you and the poll that I read to you, I had to. I, I saw it when it was first published, and I went back to look at it today um, in advance of this, and I couldn't find it. They had changed it. So they they wrote the headline as, this theory could help explain why O.J. Simpson might have killed Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman. Subhead, did football damage his brain? You might have <laughs> recalled that the old subhead like was, guys. he might have the football <laughs> disease, you guys. I like that a lot more. <laughs> So BuzzFeed seems to recognize that they they made a little mistake. We made a little mistake. How did they change the poll questions? Because the poll questions originally have nothing to do with the question of whether CTE influenced OJ's alleged murder. We're talking, Steph, you're giving it a I'm level trying of to editing long. that. I know, I'm, I'm true. <laughs> a so the of poll, scrutiny that no editor at BuzzFeed did. The poll yes. question now reads, does this theory change your opinion of OJ or the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman? You guys. You guys. <laughs> no, that was, that's how it is now. The original was, the original poll read as follows. If this is true, this is all in caps, so I'm shouting. If this is true, does this change your opinion of OJ or the murder of Nicole and Ron? Question mark, exclamation point. So the thing that changed was really the capitalization and the punctuation. Oh, they didn't change the, uh, they didn't change the answers. No, they did. The original answer was, whoa, he totally did it. <laughs> Let's just end this. I don't want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> just make Can me depressed. Can we also just point out that the BuzzFeed uh, staffers who are responsible for this are the motion pictures staff and the video curator. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of larger context here is that BuzzFeed motion pictures is yeah. expanded massively. And there have been a couple other instances where I think the BuzzFeed staff has been embarrassed by the work product that has been generated. So this is just the latest example. But it's, it's not a cat video. The juice. <laughs> We'd love your feedback from what we talked about today. You can email us at hangupatslate.com. We'll also gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen on iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. Please leave us a comment and a rating. It helps us with the subscriptions. Become a fan on Facebook, facebook.com slash hangupandlisten. Our intern is Julia Karen. Our producer is Mickey Capper. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang up and listen as part of the Panoply Network. Check out our roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.